Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day here at Midweek. Coming up on our program today, we're going to take a look at uh, putting together our federal nutrition standards and recommendations. We'll get the latest on that. We'll go back and get thoughts from the apple industry and potato industry about passage of USMCA and the need to get uh, something passed on ag labor. And we'll also look at uh, both parties' proposals for infrastructure improvements. We'll talk with Mike Steenhook with the Soy Transportation Coalition. But first, we want to go back and look at a recent big announcement from UPS, expansion into rural America. I talked with Robin Hooker, Director of Global Product Innovations for UPS. We are adding new locations, uh, 15,000 package express centers uh, in rural America as what we call UPS access point locations. Uh, the 15,000 package express centers, uh, just for your listeners, are um, typically counters that exist in small businesses in rural America. So imagine an independent pharmacy, lots of hardware stores, and there's a little counter within that allows you to ship UPS. Now these locations will be activated as alternate delivery and pickup locations for your listeners. What that means ultimately is that if you have something that you need to route and you can't be home to sign for it, you can route it to an access point as an alternate location, or if you have something that you need to return, you can take it back to one of these uh, small businesses and return the package there with drop-off. So you are expanding your reach into rural and what you call super rural locations. Uh, tell us about that, uh, uh, the description, super rural. What does that mean? Well, that's where we, that's our most remote geographic classification. And UPS is really looking to make sure that everybody can play in e-commerce. Everybody has an access channel, not only to receive, but also to pick up packages and return them as well. And the key thing here, I think, for your listeners is there may be technicians that support farm equipment, and they may be traveling, and they may be doing a route through rural America needing to get parts in and also return maybe a defective part, do a swap. Uh, these access points allow those types of technicians to receive and drop off and pick up um, critical p- uptime components that might support farm uh, processes. So really, you're reaching into some underserved areas, areas that are uh, really, you know, have been strapped for these kind of services and would have to travel quite a distance before to maybe have access to this kind of service. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that these businesses exist within a small business, that these little package counters exist within a small business really means that you know, you're, you're saving the consumer time as well. They're able to knock off a couple checklist items with their errands and then take care of their logistics and their shipping needs as well. We're excited about the value proposition for what this offers because it gets us closer to um, our goal of having 100% of the U.S. population covered within five miles of an access point. So this will take us from 90% coverage to 92 uh, by the end of 2020. We're talking with Robin Hooker with UPS. Robin, how can people find out uh, if this impacts their area or where they could go now uh, that they could not before for this service? Mike, this is a great question. So we have something called the UPS Global Locator. And the Global Locator is part of our website. It will allow you to go in and look for locations by entering your zip code it will give you an array of locations that are near, near, near you, you know, where you've entered your address or zip, and that gives you an opportunity to find the locations nearest to you. Now, the package express centers that we've announced, these 1,500 new ones, they are not fully deployed yet. We have about 50 up and running that we piloted. It went very, very successfully. Um, but in the same vein, we're still doing the rollout, which will take place throughout 2020. But in the meantime, your listeners can take the, check the locator for locations that are nearby. And the Package Express Center does offer full-service shipping. Uh, what, what we're activating now is 
the, the ability to reroute a package to that location uh, for alternate pickup and also to offer a drop-off solution as well. Can you give us some examples of the types of places, locations, uh, stores, or businesses where these services will now be offered? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Package Express aligns with uh, independent pharmacies, hardware stores, and uh, you know the, several brands of independent or franchise model hardware stores where it's an independent independent business owner. Um, these this model works really really well because for the store they appreciate the additional foot traffic that uh, shipping and drop off offer, and at the same time it's very convenient for the consumer. Um, because they're able to, you know, like I said earlier, accomplish a couple of different items on their checklist for, you know, the to-do list for today and at the same time receive or pick up packages. You know, we often talk about the challenges in rural America and people in some parts of rural America really feeling disconnected, whether it be from the Internet or from medical services or whatever it may be. This is another way to connect those areas, right? I mean, this helps residents there, helps businesses there, maybe will attract residents or businesses in the future. Yeah, absolutely. This is a foothold uh, for logistics and e-commerce so that everybody can participate. And if you really think about it, these locations serve as little tiny community hubs because a lot of people go in and out to take care of their shipping and logistics needs. And I think you're hearing now more and more that e-commerce is not just about ordering something online and receiving it, that you're ordering something, and, and in many cases you might be ordering various colors and sizes. You keep most of what you order, and some of it gets returns. And that's standard now. That's becoming you know, the notion that the home is the fitting room or the home is the showroom for a product, and you're sort of testing it. Um, that's built into a lot of the business operating models of a lot of uh, pure play e-commerce players and also the brick-and-mortar players that also have an e-commerce strategy as well. So, so that notion of, of this return and, and sort of um, uh, circuit of, of, you know, package input and also package output from the home, uh, we're seeing that as a growing trend. And, and we also know that, you know, from the agricultural side, there's a lot of stuff that goes in and out of the farm. Uh, and some of that stuff supports critical uptime machinery, et cetera. And, and that's a key component as well. You mentioned that part of your goal to reach uh, the entire country. Uh, so this is part of a, a plan of your of continued expansion by UPS, right? Definitely, uh, there will be more to come uh, as we uh, you know phase out our expansion cycle. Uh, we are excited about the direction that we're headed, uh, and as we approach uh, full coverage. Uh, of the population within five miles. Uh, we also have intentions in the more urbanized areas to get better coverage there uh, where things are more walkable, right? And, and, and just being very, very accessible in areas where, where the model isn't driving and it's walkability. Uh, we want full coverage in the urban areas too, but we're building out nationwide coverage now within five miles. Uh, the package express centers and the 15,000 locations uh, get us from 90 to 92%. So that's really, really exciting. That's Robin Hooker with UPS about their plans for expansion into rural America. Up next, we'll look at federal nutrition standards. Stay with us on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. The Renewable Fuels Association's 25th Annual National Ethanol Conference will be held February 10th through the 12th in Houston, Texas. Speakers include USDA Undersecretary for Trade Ted McKinney, Neil Curler, founder and CEO of Pacific Ethanol, Inc., and political analyst Bill Crystal. Registration is still available. For more information or to register, visit www.nationalethanolconference.com. This message brought to you by Syngenta, maker of Enogen, enhancing fuel ethanol production and supporting American farmers. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, the National Pork Producers Council has digital ads in the Des Moines airport saying pork, it comes from a pig, not Silicon Valley, and pork, you can't make it from plants unless you feed them to a pig first. 
Let's talk about it with Dan Kovich, Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Dan, thanks for joining us. Obviously, uh, the pork industry responding to all these imitation products on the marketplace now using the name of pork. Absolutely. You know, this is, <laughs> we feel probably the most brazen uh, misuse of a term so far uh, by this, this new plant-based industry. I don't think there's really any confusion out there that pork comes from a pig. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Whether you're on the road or in the field, you need more than typical number two diesel. You need a heavy-duty diesel like Cenex Premium Diesel. It comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. It's the diesel that keeps your equipment out of the shop and restores power by as much as 4.5% and fuel economy by up to 5%. So ask yourself, if you could be any diesel, which diesel would you be? Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 immediately. That's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. Weeds want to restrict your freedom and crush the spirit of your soybeans. Never fear. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of superior weed control is here with Liberty Herbicide. Stand proud with greater application flexibility, unmatched convenience, and excellent performance combined with the Liberty Link, Liberty Link GT27, and Enlist E3 trait systems. And it has no known resistance in U.S. row crops. Talk with your BASF rep or authorized retailer about Liberty Herbicide. Always read and follow label directions. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, there's always a lot of debate, a lot of questions, and a lot of criticism about our nutrition policies in this country, and a lot of people questioning just how effective are they with concerns over high obesity and diabetes rates in this country. Um, recently, there was a meeting, a panel of scientists in Houston, Texas, holding a first, uh, the first public hearing outside of Washington, D.C. on this topic in some time. And um, I want to get into this subject and, uh, and how these guidelines, these policies are put together and just how much impact they have. Joining us now is the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition, Nina Teicholtz. Nina, thanks for joining us. Hi, Mike. Great to be here with you. Uh, first of all, what about this hearing, this public hearing that was held recently in Washington, D.C.? What came out of that? Uh, rather, it was, held in, it was held in Houston, right? It was held in Houston, I'm sorry. In Houston. So this is the expert committee that reviews the science every five years and updates it for our dietary guidelines for Americans. Um, it's a very influential policy. It comes out every five years. And... Um, this committee is in the process of reviewing the science. So this was just one step along the way. Uh, and they revealed a number of things that we could talk about. But um, it, they really just they re reviewed the science and they took oral comments from the public, which they do uh, two times during the course of their work. You know, I think a lot of people say, well, I don't really pay that much attention to these uh, guidelines uh, that, uh, that come out from right. the government. And so they say... How, how big a deal is this? But it does have a lot of influence, doesn't it, on, on things like school lunch programs and things like that? Yes, I think people 
And I myself did not understand the influence of the guidelines when I started out my work in nutrition. I spent um, a decade writing a book called The Big Fat Surprise that informed me on nutrition. And people don't go to a .gov website to find out about their diet, right? But there are so many ways that the dietary guidelines reach pretty much each and every American. So they do that through school lunches, feeding programs for the elderly, they determine what's in military mess halls, um, they reach hospitals, prisons, and they are pretty much downloaded as, and considered the gold standard by doctors, nurses, dietitians, nutritionists. So when you go to an office of your doctor or nutritionist and they say, this is what to eat, this is a healthy diet, fruits, nuts, uh, vegetables, seeds, low-fat dairy, lean meat, that is all the guidelines coming to you. Um, you just don't realize it. What goes into uh, establishing those guidelines? Well, they were launched in 1980, and that was also the very year that the obesity epidemic in America turned sharply upwards. Um, and the reality is they were launched based on extremely weak science. So the, the guidelines have really been a process of trying to uh, reverse like walk back the weak science that they were originally founded upon. So that's why we've had, for example, a reversal on cholesterol caps. We no longer are told to limit our dietary cholesterol. All those egg white omelets and shellfish that you didn't eat was um, what turned out to be for nothing, which is a shame because all the nutrients, as many of us know, are in the yolk of the egg and there are many needed nutrients also in shellfish. Also, the low-fat diet has been walked back. Um, so the guidelines are just based on extremely weak evidence. There are a number of still existing recommendations that, that my group believes is ba are based on weak evidence. Um, that would include the SALT recommendation that lower is better for everyone. Uh, there's not evidence for that. And, and there are also serious questions about the, the limits on saturated fats. You know, you gave some good examples, and I think every time there's a switch in that, what you know, something we're told we shouldn't eat, and all of a sudden then they come out and say, oh, it's okay now that, that we were wrong before. Every time that happens, it seems like that weakens the credibility of the guidelines and, and people question them even more then. And justifiably so, because they are fundamentally based on this weak kind of science that shows, you know, many people remember this from science, you know, 101, but it's like they show, they're based on a science that shows association but not causation. So they're based on this very weak science that just doesn't hold up when, when experiments are done. Um, but if you've already launched these, this advice to an entire nation, it's very hard to reverse. Um, so what we see right now is really a tremendous battle trying to reverse what are turned out to be recommendations based on evidence that just has not held up. We're talking with Nina Teicholz, Executive Director of the Nutrition Coalition. Nina, so often these guidelines, the the, the story that comes out of them in, within agriculture is, uh, are they reducing the recommendations for a particular segment like meat or, or dairy or something like that? Uh, and that creates in quite a few headlines and oftentimes questions or concerns about that particular segment of agriculture that feels like uh, they're... Uh, you know, they're being uh, shortchanged on that. Uh, kind of take us behind the scenes about what really needs to be looked at here when they come up with these uh, policies, and are they really looking at the science when they make these decisions? So uh, when they review the science, um, so let's just take the topic of saturated fats, which really affects the, just the two subjects that you mentioned, meat and dairy, right? So dairy... Milk. We've seen the we've seen milk um, companies go bankrupt. The the uh, just recently the reduction in whole milk in America has been um, since 1970s reduced by about 79 percent our consumption of whole milk, and that has made that whole category decline because skim milk just doesn't replace it because it's not as tasty and filling. Um, some might argue, and so they have to put sugar in it to get kids to drink it. Well, that is based on the saturated fat caps, that we are not supposed to eat too much saturated fat. The same is true for lean meat. We're supposed to eat lean meat and not red meat, um, which has more saturated fats in it. That saturated fat science 
is really not based on on any rigorous evidence. Or actually, in the case of saturated fats, which is the subject that I studied in depth, there were a lot of rigorous um, science trials on saturated fats that were done in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but they were, and they were incredibly good trials. But they were all conducted before the guidelines started. And the guidelines never considered them. They and they've never gone back to look at them. And the and in the last 20 years, there's been a lot of reconsideration of those fats. And um, all of the studies have concluded recently that saturated fats um, do not have no effect on cardiovascular that, which disease, which is to say heart disease or total mortality. So the rate limiting factor on these industries, dairy and milk, really comes down to a recommendation that is not based on good science. I could go on. I mean, we could talk about salt, um, but I think that that it's really a problem that the guidelines have become what's become the standard process for them is just to select this kind of weak associational science and and use that to make population wide recommendations. Which um, there really is no system rigorous system in the world that that makes recommendations based on such weak science. It's really only at USDA that they do this. So obviously there have been some other agendas at play here. They have not been following the science. Are you uh, any more confident or optimistic that in the future they will start uh, going with the science more? Um, I think that it, it that is a, this is precisely what our group is working on. We are trying to um, get some interest by members of Congress who could apply some pressure on USDA and say, um, look, there was a National Academy of Science of Engineering and Medicine report that came out saying that you are not following a state-of-the-art system for reviewing the science. And the National Academy of Science has said you need to use one of these state-of-the-art internationally recognized systems. And that report was ignored by USDA. So we are trying to get some interest in Congress to, to get USDA to follow those National Academy's recommendations. And yes, I think we couldn't possibly make it make a difference, maybe not in this round of the dietary guidelines, but going forward, it's, I think it's certainly possible. When do they come out again? When's, when's the next announcement on uh, uh, the, the, the guidelines? How often do they set these? Every five years, and the next iteration is supposed to come out at the end of this year, and then they'll be good, well, they'll be in place from 2020 to 2025. All right. So, so and, and I fully expect a rollover of the last set of dietary guidelines with you know with perhaps one or two exceptions so the the fight your fight continues to get them to look go with the science right so maybe not totally in this one but you're hopeful for the future after this one you know we'll see what we can do for this one and i think that you know the fight for the science is so important it is not a trivial matter because of the health of america as you know yeah neat yeah, Nina, thank you very much. Uh, good perspective on this, and, and I'm sure we'll be talking when they do come out here, these guidelines come out this year, uh-huh. and uh, we'll talk again, okay? I hope so. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks, Nina. Nina Teicholz, Executive Director of the Nutrition Coalition. Stay with us on AOA. The patented pod shatter reduction technology canola hybrids from Invigor are the perfect blend of strength and durability. Stronger pod seams and stems protect the canola seeds within while protecting you from potential yield loss. And that gives you added flexibility at harvest, even when dealing with adverse weather conditions. Shattering yield records, not pods. That's smart. Contact your local BASF seed advisor today. Always read and follow label directions. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Do you like what you're hearing on Adams on Agriculture? Continue that conversation, Important Agriculture, on Twitter. You can follow the talk show at AOA underscore talk show or follow Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Ag. Here you will receive real-time highlights of the show and see what others are buzzing about in the industry. Adams on Agriculture hopes to meet you online. 
The Renewable Fuels Association's 25th Annual National Ethanol Conference will be held February 10th through the 12th in Houston, Texas. Speakers include USDA Undersecretary for Trade Ted McKinney, Neil Curler, founder and CEO of Pacific Ethanol, Inc., and political analyst Bill Crystal. Registration is still available. For more information or to register, visit www.nationalethanolconference.com. This message brought to you by Syngenta, maker of Enogen, enhancing fuel ethanol production and supporting American farmers. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Row crops on the Board of Trade are now trading lower after going slightly higher in pre-market trading. For traders, concerns that South American corn crops will have supportive weather are bearish for U.S. corn futures. Overall, weather today is likely to contribute to a bearish bias on market mentality. On the Board of Trade, May soybeans trading a fraction higher at 8.93 and three quarters of a cent. May corn down two cents at 3.86. March Minneapolis spring wheat up two and a half cent at 5.34 and a quarter. March Kansas City wheat up two and three quarters at 4.70. March Chicago wheat up a penny at 5.58 and a fraction of a cent. The long-term focus on increased cattle supply numbers through spring and summer has traders uncertain of strong nearby support developing across the complex. On the Board of Trade, April live cattle trading 20 cents lower at 120.45, June down 12 at 111.62. April feeder cattle down 72 cents at 138.20. The May contract down 6 at 140.62. Despite the focus on the coronavirus over the last couple of weeks, the impact of African swine fever on global production still remains a major issue. This remains bullish for domestic pork production as the need for pork in China continues to be high. On the Board of Trade, April lean hogs trading a nickel higher at 62.40. In addition to the coronavirus, China is also dealing with another outbreak of the deadly avian influenza, which has so far led to the culling of 18,000 birds. In the outside markets, the Dow is up 286 points, the Nasdaq Composite up 55, the S&P 500 up 24 points, crude oil in New York up $1.72 at 51.33 per barrel. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Thousands of people contact InventHelp monthly about their invention or new product. Do you think companies would be interested in your idea? Do you want to try to get a patent? Call InventHelp now. Best of all, the call and information are free. InventHelp keeps your idea confidential, explaining every step of the invention process. We create professional materials and submit them to companies who are looking for new ideas in your category. We have more than 9,000 companies who have agreed to review new ideas in confidence. If a company shows interest in manufacturing, Manufacturing your invention, we can negotiate on your behalf. We have helped over 10,000 clients receive patents. We offer 3D modeling and animation, prototyping services, and we use state-of-the-art technology to present client ideas to additional companies. Join people just like you who made the call to invent help. You have nothing to lose. The call and the information are free. Call 1-800-213-4556. That's 1-800-213-4556. Again, 1-800-213-4556. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. We continue to get reaction to the signing of USMCA and how it impacts different segments of U.S. agriculture. We have two guests with us now. Jim Baer is president and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Also with us is Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Gentlemen, welcome both of you to Adams on Agriculture once again. Jim, I'll start with you. Your reaction uh, to the signing and what this means for the apple industry. Hi, Mike. Uh, yeah, this was a huge win for U.S. agriculture. Mexico and Canada are the number one and two markets for many U.S. ag products, and that certainly includes apples. We normally export a billion dollars worth of apples around the world, and half of that uh, goes to Mexico and Canada. So this is a, a huge win, one that we sorely needed. And Cam, from the potato uh, perspective, what's the significance of USMCA? Uh, Mike, very, very similar to, to what 
Jim sees for his apple producers, for the potato industry, Mexico and Canada, they're the number two and three largest export markets for us. Uh, collectively, over $550 million in annual exports. So stabilizing these markets, renewing the terms of trade, uh, 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 it's not really a revolution from NAFTA, but it's an evolution, a very necessary one. Uh, that these are all real positives for us. So we're we're very excited. We got this thing to the finish line. Yeah, you touched on something there. I wanted to ask about Cam. Uh, how much different is for for your in your perspective from the potato industry's perspective? How much different is USMCA from NAFTA? Well. You know, when you when you look at the growth of both Mexico and Canada under NAFTA, it it, it was working very very well for us. So, uh, simply renewing the terms of trade and updating them to some degree to, rec- to reflect that it was a uh, a a 25 year old agreement that we were dealing with. Um, those were all the, the, those are those are necessary steps. Um, there are some incremental improvements that are embedded within USMCA relating to how uh, all countries will deal with pest and disease issues. And a lot of those pest and disease issues, those are going to be the trade barriers of the future, particularly for the fruit and vegetable industry. Uh, that, that will, as tariffs, as tariffs decline, the, the use of, of uh, faulty science by certain countries to protect their markets will become a bigger and bigger challenge for the United States. Jim, your thoughts uh, from the apple industry's perspective, much change. Uh, uh, what would the improvements of USMCA be over NAFTA for you? Well, we loved NAFTA. Honestly, uh, we may have been at the, at the forefront of, of extolling the virtues of, of NAFTA because we quadrupled our apple exports to Mexico and we doubled our exports to Canada. So it was hard for us to see that we were going to increase our markets or market share much beyond that. But the importance of the, of this new agreement is just locking those gains in at least for the next 16 years. Um, that's one distinction. Whereas NAFTA was permanent law until Congress would decide to change it. This agreement has a 16 year sunset provision. Um, and so at least we've locked in for another 16 years those important gains that U.S. agriculture, and particularly for for apples. So we were we were thrilled with with NAFTA, and we're happy to get it back under USMCA. Jim, what's your outlook for for the apple industry for 2020? Uh, are you expecting a, a big year for exports, or or what do you think is going to happen this year? Well, we think with the signing of USMCA and the signing of the Phase One deal with China, that those are both going to be um, positive, but it's going to take a while, I think, to get back up to the velocity of trade that we were enjoying up until, say, 18 months ago. I describe it as being like stuck on a on a interstate highway and the traffic is stop and go, and the, the accident that caused the stoppage may have been cleared off to the side of the road two hours ago, but it takes you quite a while to get back up to 60 miles an hour, and I think that's kind of what we're going to be facing here is it's it's uh it's not going to be instantaneous but it's going to be an important signal to growers so that at least they can plan on uh that what was uh you know half of our export market and one third of our of our total uh, production was going export so it's an important signal but it's not going to be immediate but we've got our eye on the on the horizon and we're just going to keep plugging away and this will uh, this agreement will allow our growers to get back to doing what they do best, which is to ship premium products, uh, best prices all over the world. And how big of a share of a market are exports for apple growers here in the U.S.? We normally would export about a third of our crop, and uh, our exports are down about a third. So that means in the last 18 months, we've lost about one-sixth of our markets, and we're anxious to get those back. This agreement will go a long way uh, in returning uh, Mexico and Canada. Their rightful spot is number one and two. And then next, we're anxious to see uh, India, uh, which is number three, and China, number six. We're anxious to see those markets uh, get back to where they were. The tariffs in India for U.S. apples are now 70%. The tariffs in China are 60%. So that's our next 
goal. That's our next objective. And we, we're, we're anxious to see the administration, uh, you know, push hard on those and get those markets back too. Cam, what's the outlook uh, this year for exports for the potato growers? Well, we're the, clearing away some of the volatility that Jim indicated. We, we were seeing that same thing, too, for, uh, for potato exports. You know, when you looked around the world, um, the, the markets that were potentially going to be compromised by all of this trade, all these trade challenges, you're talking about fully half of our exports could, could have been threatened. Um, getting USMCA done, it's a great signal that, that the U.S. can get uh, these deals to the finish line. Now we really want to focus. You know, the China Phase 1 agreement was, was a, a, a good announcement. There were some potato-specific provisions that were included in it. Um, what we really want to focus, though, on is essentially – we were ratcheting tariffs up in uh, China and the U.S. kind of in a tit-for-tat manner. That just froze those tariffs where they were, but they're still at an elevated level. We, we, we want to see the two sides get together, um, reduce those tariffs back to the, to the competitive levels that we were at before, also expand market access um, to valuable markets, Japan, China, uh, Mexico, um, the potential that's out there for the potato industry, if we get these market access agreements right, is is really significant. You're talking about uh, a huge expansion of opportunities to, to export, particularly in the chipping and the fresh potato markets. Um, right now, we're moving about 20% of our overall volume has to find a home in foreign markets. And... Um, by, by further opening these valuable export markets, that uh, that that number is going to increase if we can get it right. Another issue I know that you'll be addressing, Jim. We'll start with you uh, from the Apple perspective. That's the labor issue. Uh, that'll be huge uh, for you to be able to take advantage of these opportunities in trade. Oh, absolutely. We were so happy and excited that the House of Representatives back on December nineteenth passed the. The uh, ag labor bill, a lot of people said it couldn't be done. Uh, it was remarkable to see liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans come together in a way that hasn't been done in a few years in Washington, D.C., and they put aside their their uh, overheated political uh, uh, disagreements for the moment and passed a bill that has tremendous uh, promise for, for U.S. agriculture. It would, it would address the wage issue. It would... Uh, it would also make a, a path for the workers that are here illegally to come out of the shadows, pay a significant fine to get right with the law, and then and then be able to work legally. And it also would include for the year-round agriculture like dairy and confinement agriculture and so forth, the first time that they'll have access to a, a legal labor pool. So it was really important. So now our attention uh, moves to the Senate. We've got a couple of Senate champions that are already writing up a bill. We think it will actually be more friendly to agriculture. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we're anxious to see that happen, get the two uh, houses together, iron out any differences in a bill, and get it to the president's desk for signature. And that would, that would just be an absolutely enormous uh, accomplishment in this white-hot political environment to get something done for agriculture that's been overdue for for 25 years or more. Cam, labor a key issue for potato growers too? It's it's really been growing in its importance, Mike. Um, uh, Now, as we go around the country, labor is the top one or two issues combined with what we've just been talking about with trade. So uh, we work very closely in uh, a coalition uh, across U.S. agriculture that that uh, uh, Jim's organization is involved in, the National Potato Council is involved in that. Uh, we've, we've been spending a tremendous amount of time trying to get that House bill to the finish line. Um, as he indicated, it's not, a, it's not a perfect bill, but really nothing that we deal with is ever, is ever perfect. Um, now the, we, the Senate has the opportunity to improve on it. Um, much like how we deal with a farm bill every five years, mm-hmm. you, you take the good provisions you can pass in the House, the good ones in the Senate, um, you, you 
you you fix them up in in conference and you hopefully deliver a, a bill to the president's desk that's actually going to matter so we're, we're pretty right. we're pretty excited about this opportunity We'll be watching that closely. Our thanks to Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council, and Jim Baer, President and CEO of the U.S. Apple Association. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Stay with us. More to come here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. My mom's a breast cancer survivor. The United Breast Cancer Foundation saved her life. Their free breast cancer exam caught the cancer early, and it saved her life. But now the foundation needs your help so they can continue offering free or low-cost breast screening exams, saving more women's lives. Help them by donating your car, whether it's running or not. They'll provide fast, free 24-hour pickup, and you receive a charitable tax deduction, plus the great feeling you'll get knowing your donated car is going to help save more lives. Just call 800-745-3327 to set the wheels in motion. They take cars, trucks, vans, and SUVs running or not. Call 800-745-3327. The United Breast Cancer Foundation needs your help, and your donation could literally save women's lives, helping them catch breast cancer early like they did with my mom. Donate today, 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110 and I had a stroke and I'm 33 so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it or talk with your doctor to create an exercise diet and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell Brought to you by the American Heart Association American Medical Association and the Ad Council The Renewable Fuels Association's 25th Annual National Ethanol Conference will be held February 10th through the 12th in Houston, Texas. Speakers include USDA Undersecretary for Trade Ted McKinney, Neil Curler, founder and CEO of Pacific Ethanol, Inc., and political analyst Bill Crystal. Registration is still available. For more information or to register, visit www.nationalethanolconference.com. This message brought to you by Syngenta, maker of Enogen, enhancing fuel ethanol production and supporting American farmers. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're talking with the president of the National Corn Growers Association, Kevin Ross. Kevin, you're back from a trade mission along with the U.S. Grains Council. Tell us about it. We went to uh, Vietnam and, and met with some uh, large importers there. One of the ones I'll, I'll bring up is CP Industries, and they're uh, the largest feed miller in the world. Uh, met with those folks, certainly a big customer and some people that uh, we've worked with, and the Grains Council especially has worked with for a long time. Um, also had a chance to meet with the ambassador for Vietnam, had good conversations with him about the potential uh, and the future of that market and what you know where it's been. It's, it's an amazing economy from where it's been just in the last 15 years. And so it's growing fast there in Vietnam. It's number three importer of DDGs. Uh, six or seven in direct corn imports and and uh, an emerging market for ethanol. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. 
So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Time is money, right? And money? Well, it's the whole reason we go to work every day. Cenex Premium Diesel protects both. With a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, Cenex Roadmaster XL helps your entire fuel system stay up and running, so you can count more profits and steer clear of losses. Now don't spend all that free time in one place, unless it's the highway. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, both... Political parties have infrastructure plans. How are they alike or different, and what are the chances of anything happening on infrastructure this year? Let's talk about it with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, thanks for joining us. Uh, what can you tell us about these plans that are being uh, put forth by the uh, both political parties? Well, you, we're seeing you know both parties unveil a number of contours, kind of some broad contours and themes that they really want to see uh be achieved you know the, the, the on the democratic side particularly on the house democratic side they've actually attributed some money to it um and so and it's it's a big you know 760 billion dollar number um you know, of course the big difference the big question mark of course for on both the house of both the republicans and the the democrats is how you pay for it that's the 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 prevailing question the perpetual question on matters related to this um you know again the easiest part is to spend the hardest part is to pay for it um but what we what we do see when you're looking at these just you know broad themes one of them that you're seeing on both the democratic side and on the republican side which really excites us is a real emphasis on rural infrastructure things like rural roads rural bridges you know our rural bridge system that's where when you look at all of the deficient bridges in the united states they're highly concentrated in rural areas but yet it's the rural communities the counties the municipalities that are the least equipped to be able to upgrade those bridges and so the fact that the, the federal government recognizes that it's not their sole responsibility to take care of rural bridges but they can certainly make a meaningful contribution to it that's something that really excites us and we look forward to you know continuing to make this case in the future we need to be attentive to the needs of urban america but we also need to be attentive to the needs of rural america is there enough common ground between the two proposals where they could conceivably come together and get something passed finally on infrastructure well yeah i think that's when you look at both the Republicans and the Democrats. They they both have this high aspiration to be able to demonstrate to the American people, in the midst of all of the acrimony, uh, all of the hard feelings, that there is an ability to get something done. And and the last thing they want to do is say, I would like to do something on infrastructure, but it's the Democrats that are preventing it. And the Democrats want to likewise will say, well, we want to do something about infrastructure, but the Republicans won't permit it. I do think there's an opportunity to get something done meaningfully on infrastructure. The question is, is it a big, comprehensive uh, infrastructure plan, or is it something more modest, like reauthorizing what's called the highway bill, the surface transportation bill that's due to be reauthorized every five years. It last was passed in 2015, so it is due for reauthorization in 2020. And that's so, so I think at minimum we'll see something like a a new highway bill get passed. question is, is there going to be something more seismic? And, you know, the, the big determining factor on that, I think, is going to be the president and, and how much he really wants to, to get behind it and how he really sees what he sees, whether doing a, a highway bill or something more comprehensive than that. And what are the signals coming out of the administration on that? Well, I, I you know, he, he clearly uh, understands the importance of infrastructure. It really is one of his, on the short list of issues that he's really passionate about uh, more than others so i i mean i do think he he'll want to do something significant yeah that 
whether it's more comprehensive or something really, uh, you know, a, a well-capitalized highway bill, that really remains to be seen. But, you know, one of the messages that we're conveying to the administration and to Congress is there's a project that could get green-lighted right now um, that doesn't require any congressional authorization. Congress has already provided the money for it. Now it's just up to the administration to actually give it the green light, and that's deepening the lower Mississippi River between Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to the Gulf of Mexico. That area accounts for 60% of soybean exports, 59% of corn exports, and there's this effort to, to deepen it so that you can improve the economics of that key launching point for soybean and corn exports. Again, Congress passed the, the funding for it. It was signed into law in, before Christmas of this past year, and now it's up to the administration to say, we, we are going to include this particular project as a priority project to receive funding. So this is a real key time, and, and really it's up to the administration to make that come to pass. And so that's something that we're working very diligently on right now. The president could do something right now on infrastructure that would enhance the supply chain of agriculture. That's a great opportunity. Which would seem to be a logical step. I mean, you pass trade deals. Uh, you have to be able to move that product to those destinations where you're going to trade with, those countries you're going to trade with. So uh, that makes this even more critical. And I, that, that's a message that I'm really trying to transmit, that it's a package deal. You, if, we, if we aspire to export more, you at the same time have to aspire to have an infrastructure that can accommodate it. You can't have one without the other. It is a package deal. So it really is an, an opportunity to really convey this message. A couple of days ago, Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa actually had a meeting with the head of the Army Corps of Engineers emphasizing this particular project because you know, on the aftermath of this phase one deal with China, um, some of the increased prospects for doing some exports, we're hopeful that those mater will materialize. You know, she made this case that, hey, if, if, if we want to really provide the shot of adrenaline to agriculture, um, yes, we've got these trade deals, this prospect for new exports, but we also have to have this infrastructure. This specific project deepening the lower Mississippi River is a real key uh, way to enhance our supply chain. So there are some things that uh, they could get done on infrastructure right away without having to pass a big comprehensive uh, bill. So we'll see if they if take advantage of those opportunities and uh, we actually see some uh, significant progress made in some of those areas, hopefully this year when it comes to infrastructure. That's Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. Thank you for joining us here on Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.